Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. So what we thought would be a great start is to bring in uh, Jim Seitzer, who was the, the first official member of Westside Barbell. Jim, thanks for coming in. And um, just to get started and into the swing of things, before you even got to Westside, what, uh, what sports and what did you begin with? Well, I, was, I started out uh, doing gymnastics in high school. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then got a scholarship to Ohio State University. Um, I was a specialist, uh, uh, I was still rings, and did some parallel bars, but mostly rings. Um, had a great college experience in gymnastics, really loved it. Uh, lettered my first three years, two weeks before the Big Ten meet uh, in March of my junior year, uh, I had a, I ripped my bicep doing mm-hmm. straight arm shoots on the ring on the rings and couldn't get the injury healed back enough for my senior year. So that was it. So I sat out my senior year, graduated. And, uh, you know, uh, one day you're, you're a gymnast, you graduate the next day, you're nothing. Um, was moping around campus, feeling sorry for myself. And, uh, on a Saturday and I heard all this clanging and banging, <clears throat> and I kept walking toward Ohio Stadium, and um, there were these two big red doors on that Saturday morning, and they were lifting weights in the OSU Weightlifting Club. Okay. Big squat workout. And I just stood there and watched. And uh, next thing I know, they said, yeah, come on in and join us. And, you know, I, that sucker. I had sucker <laughs> written across my forehead, you know. So they took me in there. They put me through a squat squat workout. It took a full week before I was walking. My mother was worried. You know, she, she <laughs> you might have to go to the doctor and uh, all that kind of thing. So, but that was it. Where was the Where was the gym? Where was the- it? Was in the southwest corner of, of the Bell Tower. Okay. So um, I'm not even sure those doors are there any longer. But for years and years, it was there. Um, I think they finally closed it down, maybe in the late '80s. Something like that. Was this open to the public and to students? Or no, it was it was strictly for um, well, yeah, mostly for students. But um, you had to qualify okay. to, to become a member. And um, and Tom, that was one of only two places, uh, you know, in Columbus where you could work out. It was the Oshu Weightlifting Club in the downtown Y. That was it, man. There's no other equipment around, or just gyms. I tell people, I tell these younger guys today that there were no commercial gyms in Columbus, Ohio in the mid seventies. Wow. So, I mean, it's almost hard to, you almost can't comprehend that, but that's the way it was. And, and actually the very first one was in 1978, uh, Tom Green opened a gym on high street, right, right by East North Broadway. And that was the first one. Okay. And then the Lorimer family started coming in with, uh, the gold's gym and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, and now, now they're everywhere. Everything. <laughs> um, it's nearly reverting back. Like there's too much commercial, not enough private or quote unquote hardcore gyms. Uh, so when you went in through those doors, went through your squat workouts, um, and you got over recovering, did something click? And you're like, oh, this is this is for me compared to or to replace gymnastics. Yeah, because like I said, my college 
athletic experience was so great. Had a great coach, instilled all the good um, uh, qualities of competition, uh, healthy competition, and just loved it, man. I mean, it was great. I, I wanted to do that. I mean, I'm in my early 20s. I still wanted to do that stuff. Um, and then just, you know, started lifting weights. I figured that, that's the only thing I kind of really, that's what I was doing to try to heal the injury in the first yeah. place. And yeah, one thing led to another. So for two years, I was just doing lifting weights, not really knowing much about anything. And there wasn't much to know back then. So, uh, and then on a Saturday morning in June of 1976, uh, in walks this guy with hair down to here. <laughs> and he's thick, heavily plated with muscle. And he's bench, press, bench pressing a shitload of weight. <clears throat> you know, we had never seen any of that before. Yeah. And uh, uh, I worked up the courage to, after a while, to go over and talk to him. And we're standing there by those two doors. And we talked for a half an hour. Finally, he says, he goes, ah, just come down to my place next Saturday. And that was it. That was it. That was Louis Simmons. Hard to believe he had long hair. Long hair. Uh, he had hair down to here. One week later, when I knocked on the door at 590 Larkham, what comes to the door but this guy in a t-shirt who was bald? <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. He never, I, he never let hair grow out again, you know. So then <clears throat> he started growing the Fu Manchu yeah. and all that kind of stuff with his signature. And uh, so I thought, and back then, nobody had bald. <laughs> you know, nobody was bald. That was really unusual. So you're thinking, I'm already thinking, I don't, you know, is this going to go well? Who knows? But um, yeah, so we had that first squat workout downstairs on a Saturday in his basement. And uh, who else was there? Was it just you and him at the start? or was it, was, there... it was, it was, yeah, it was me and him and, um, uh, Jeff Fisher, who uh, didn't last very long. He was kind of like a, uh, somebody lived in a neighborhood that was probably there to support, yep. support Lou more, more so than anything. And then Bill Whitaker started coming in. He lived just on the other street, the, the other side. He was in vet school. Okay. Um, and then next in was uh, uh, Tom Pellucci and then Tim Gallagher. And, that, and we were the five original ones. So Pellucci, Gallagher, Whitaker... Simmons, Seitzer. That was it for several years. How did you all meet? How did it, like how did this all come together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know how the other guys got in there. I don't recall that much. But uh, Lou basically, after ten years of training on his own, I think wanted to have you know other people in there. Yeah, he he had made that decision or, or come to that realization somehow. So I don't know how the other guys, I, I just remember we all started coming together right around the same time. Yeah. That's a lot of different personalities. And it's amazing that um, you all were able to coexist in a small basement at the start. Right. And it was in that basement for not very long, maybe a month and a half or two months. I've, <laughs> I've heard many stories of the, the basement of bars getting broke and going through ceilings and walls any any truth to these stories um not that i recall uh, but uh it, it was really a tight space then um then you're in 
the garage. Everyone's in there training. Were you all just trying to figure out how all this worked? Was this is when the trial and error and experimentation started? Yeah, Lou knew how to. Lou knew how to. He was power squatting, you know, with, you know, wide stance, uh, low low on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, he had perfect form, and he made sure we all were lifting that way too. Uh, deadlifting also, you know, we were all for the most part, except for Pellucci, uh, sumo stance deadlifters, mm-hmm. um, bench pressing, uh, you know, we just all had good form because of Lou. He made sure we had that. He definitely led the way on all that. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't know anything. I didn't know squat. I didn't know anything. I mean, I go down there weighing a, you know, a buck 55, uh, and, uh, I'm you know, after the first several weeks of squatting, I thought, you know, this is this is a waste of time. I'm not getting a pump. Yeah, I'm barely breathing hard. Um, yeah, I'm getting smashed by weight, but I I just didn't think it meant anything or or anything good was going to come out of it. And I couldn't have been <laughs> more wrong. Um, did everyone have their contributions? So when you guys would finish training, would you talk about training ideas or would you just get in there and get out and let Louis Lou the way? Or was it a combination of everybody? In and out. We basically, we didn't know anything. I mean, you know, uh, it just, it took me a full year, one full year to begin to understand how all these parts and pieces were coming together and how it's working. You know, so I put on 20 pounds of good quality muscle that first year, 20 pounds. My body weight went up 20 pounds. So, and it looked good. I mean, I was always lean anyhow. So, and I thought, you know, you know, I might be stupid, but I'm not, I'm staying with this, you know? And, um, and like Lou says in the Iron Samurai, the, the, the stronger I got, the, 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 the more my squats went up, um, the bigger I got, and the better I was winning as a bodybuilder. And you were, you were bodybuilding at the time you were training at Westside. Was, was that the discipline you were in? Yeah. I mean, I had uh, won the Mr. Oshu competition three times, okay. you know, which was just a little college thing. And it wasn't hardly anything back then. Yeah. So... Uh, they actually changed the rules because I was winning so much. <laughs> they said, that's it, once a year, and you've won too many times, you're out, and which is <laughs> the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and then some local uh, state shows and things like that. But, you know, I just was small, you know, but had good symmetry and yeah. good uh, uh, muscularity naturally, you know, that kind of thing. So, so as the... As the group progressed, where was Lou pulling these ideas from? Did he ever share like where he was getting the new concepts from? He was trying. <clears throat> well, you know, everybody knows that he was reading uh, Bulgarian strength journals and, and and all that kind of stuff. But that didn't come on until later. Um, a lot of the early stuff that we were doing. I mean, there was there was no percent training back then. There was none of the technology we have today mm-hmm. it, it was kind of like feeling your way through the dark but he had a even then he had a, a natural instinct for uh what was right and and what was wrong 
plus he was extremely flexible. So new ideas that worked, boom, they're in the toolbox. Yeah. Something that doesn't work, boom, it's gone right now. He had no qualms about that. That was important because now you're doing good things that, you know, building one, one layer on top of another. So that was the era of when, you know, he figured out how to use box squats. We had like four different levels, <clears throat> rack deadlifts, different levels of rack deadlifts, um, rack benches, which you don't see done the way we did them back in those days very often. I still say it's one of the, the number one top movements to, to get your bench up. What was the difference? Well, because <clears throat> so you had these pins up different levels, right? Mm -hmm. And most people, when they do rack benches, they'll leave the bar on the pins and then they push from there on up. Mm -hmm. We found that that didn't work nearly as well as having pins very close to the to where the support bars are. Then, get, you know, getting your getting all your arch, mm -hmm. lifting lifting out of those pins, down tap and go, then racking it. Just that little change like that made all the difference in in rack bench pressing. You don't see that today. And it was everything controlled when you bring it down. It wasn't the right. trying to get the bounce. Everything was totally ridiculous. Super tight. Yeah. Just tap lightly, push up. He Lou would <laughs> he never would have let you just bounce something like that. Yeah. That never would have happened. So um, and then you know you know and then of course the the uh, he, he we got he got. For, for a long time there, we would do two, two, and two, like in rack deadlifting. So we would do two weeks of high rack poles, mm -hmm. um, maybe two weeks off the floor, two weeks sub subfloor, uh, but it was always in twos like that. And it, it, went like, it, it went like that for a while too with squatting and that seemed to work for a while. And then when it didn't work, he started to come up with other ideas, kind of like hence the beginning of conjugate yeah. type stuff. So uh so naturally he had that instinct off the bat he did it just it was just there the odd thing is we didn't know any better because we'd never <laughs> seen anything like that you just figure well i guess you know all right you're just you know like a bumpkin just moving along on things we didn't know but after like three or four after like two or three years uh we all became uh part of the feedback system and came up with ideas and, and were able to contribute. That was the greatest feeling of all. Um, I was able to contribute because I found different accessory exercises that worked that made me a stronger bencher, mm -hmm. uh, better, a stronger deadlifter and a stronger squatter. And so that felt good mm -hmm. to be able to help or be a part of something in a positive way instead of just you know, sit, but it takes it takes time for that. And was that his goal was to educate you guys up to the level where you could all give feedback? To progress? Oh yeah, he was great with that. He yeah. liked that. Um, although you know, there were times when he would say, "But that sounds like a dumb idea," you know. Yeah. But you know, he he didn't like the fact that I would come in and power lift there and then leave and go play bodybuilder some at another gym. You know, he'd say, "You don't need to do that stuff." And um, but then when he found out that it worked. Um, he came know. back and was saying that you would come in and I'd be like, that goddamn Jimmy, that uh, you'd have a <laughs> leg press. Well, the, the angle is five degrees different than this. And he was like, what's he talking about? And then it clicked. It was like, you're using the system because a little meant a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So 
I'm a bodybuilder. I'm a little guy. You know, I got small joints. A lot of those guys in there are natural born powerlifters. You know, they're, you know. And so I, I was always the weakest mm -hmm. guy in the gym. And that was fine by me because, you know, I was one of the biggest short bodybuilders in America. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I was strong enough that, you know, I got a couple of elites and, and I was happy with that. I knew I was never going to be a national champ like Gary Sanger and Doug Heath and those guys. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, but for me to, 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 to hang in there, um, I just found that, uh, for instance, doing hamstring work and calf work, um, made my squats, you know, a lot stronger, um, doing shrugs made my deadlift stronger. And Lou used to, buy, he'd bust my chops. He'd say, what are you doing those damn shrugs for? They, they don't do any good. And I said, okay, all right. So I'd stop doing them for a while. Then my deadlift would go down. You know, and then I'd secretly start doing them again at another <laughs> gym. My deadlift went up. Well, two or three cycles of this, I, I told him, I said, I don't care what you say. I got to do this stuff. <laughs> Just leave me alone, would yeah. you? And, um, and so uh, biceps for, uh, for uh, benching and then rear delts. I think rear delts, when Lou saw how do, working, you know, the, the upper back rear delt area, how much that improved bench pressing, um, that's when he, I think the light bulb went on then and he, you know, started embracing all different kinds of accessory work. From that, um, you said that he threw out stuff that didn't work and kept stuff that did. Is there anything that you could share that you're like, I can't believe we tried that looking back now? Um, I've put a lot of thought into this and, and looking back over the years, he had an unusually high success rate of ideas. And um, the best I was able to figure was eight out of 10. So eight out of 10 of his ideas were good and they worked and yeah. we kept it. Uh, two out of 10 weren't and they got pitched. Um, the night he came up with the, the idea for rever reverse hypers, <laughs> it was a Friday night squat workout and he throws, you know, he puts the pins up high in the power rack, puts a two by six in there and wraps it down with belts and straps and then throws a bar in there and jumps up on this two by six and starts swinging his legs. Well. You have no idea how we busted his chops on this. I mean, we're laughing like hell, you know, Re really, <laughs> really on him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he didn't care. He just kept doing it. He had a broken back. He was, you know, and uh, every week after Friday squat workouts, he'd put that two by six in there and we're like, Jesus, you know. So then we're finally doing it with him, you know. And we're strapping 25 pound plates between our ankles with a carpenter's big leather carpenter belt and then padding goes on two by six and then he built something else well you know six seven months later i got 80 pounds on my squat wow everybody else does too so you're thinking just gonna shut up and uh <laughs> just pay attention and not bust his chops so much you know but uh <laughs> Of all his ideas, of all the ideas, the one we laughed at the most, or laughed at at all, was the reverse hyper, and that wound up being the most famous, or, yeah. famous, most important device device yeah. ever. When you guys were, were you who would strap you in? It was a partner to where they'd strap you in, and then you were locked in no matter what, and you had to get your sets done. 
Well, or, you mean the, on the reverse? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you know, we'd stack up 25-pound plates between our feet, and then we'd, uh, sometimes, it, you know, you had to have somebody pull on the belt to get it really tight. Yeah. And then, uh, you, you know, like Lou would get, you know, you grab that belt and, you, and uh, the, the guy jumps up, you know, so you had to lift the weight up there too. Yeah. You know, so we would work up to some five and six 25 pound plates in between our feet. So it was like a big gap like that. Yeah. Um, jump up, do the set. Um, and it was, you know, and I want to tell you something still to this day. And I knew, Lou, I know Lou would no, it, it, it yell at me, <laughs> but uh, I still think those free weight reverse hypers mm-hmm. are superior. Why is that? They just are. At least for me, they were. Is it because there was having no control made you control it more? Yeah, there was more control involved. And there were, I think it was, uh, you were able to target the muscle area, the, 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 the mechanics of the movement better. You know, I've spent a lot of time on reverse hypers over my life. Um, machines and, and the freestanding style like that. I think if you talk to any of the other people that were in that garage during over those years, mm-hmm. um, they would probably agree with me. Well, probably too, when you look at the practicality and the vast majority of people, it's hard to educate them how to do the machine, right? That, that, but I can understand what you're saying from a, from a free weight aspect. Right. Um, but for everything, what made Louis amazing in multiple ways was that he weighed the pros and cons in an instant. And he would give you the answer and you'd be like, that's not true. But by the time it would take you a couple of days to go through everything, you'd be like, oh, he's yeah. right. He just, right. he like was that. Always. It yeah. was in, I, you know, you got to the point where you, you, you thought, well, that doesn't sound quite right. But after being wrong, when you think that way so many times in a row over like two or three years, whenever you hear something, you think that doesn't, you, your instincts now are to go with it. Yeah. And he was usually right. The smartest thing he did was turn the reverse hyper machine into a, a, a swing arm apparatus because you're right. How would people, nobody would be doing it today mm-hmm. if you had to, to strap 25 pound plates to, uh, to your ankles. That's just not going to happen. Well, and that's a. And the only difference really is just a very small percentage, maybe, yep. you know, three or 4% difference, but you could tell it, you know. And only all. you group can really compare it because you were there at the inception of everything with Lou, and you can feel that difference. Um, and we get it today that a lot of people don't understand you got to pull the weight from the heels. Exactly. Everyone's like either some version of a leg, they don't do it correctly, they do it too fast. You had no choice because it was a dead hang because you were actually holding the weight down too, where the machine's doing a lot of it. Right. Um, yeah, the inertia part yeah. of it, you know. But if I were you, I would probably, just so people could see, I mean, there's hardcore hardcore advocates out there who if they saw you know you get that swing arm up out of the way and then strap uh strap those plates on a a certain way it gets kind of nice and tight and comfortable and then you can drive man you can drive drive out with that it's just um it's it's something it's uh something would create some buzz i think you heard that from Jimmy, not from me. <laughs> we're not getting in trouble for whatever happens. Um, so at, at this stage, when you're going through the and Louis had broke his back, yeah, what was that like when when that happened at the gym? I remember it really clearly. Um, you know, of course, 
you know, he's upset. He can't squat. He would come, he would come in there in the gym. He was working around that broken back all the time. So it wasn't like he was sitting on the couch eating Doritos. Yeah. Uh, so he's, he could, he could bench press. He could work triceps, shoulders. Um, he was hobbling around. Uh, and then the idea for the, for the reverb, I, I, I don't know what other back movements he might have been able to do, but uh, he was aggressively trying to, to heal it. And he was clearly not happy <laughs> being in the circumstances he yeah. was. And, uh, and then the reverse hyper came out of that. A lot of things came out from him falling apart. Yeah. To the, and I, I tell a lot of people, he's the example of the extreme dedication to the sport he wants to find the upper limits because to him if you can find usually what's most dangerous or the most carryover but you got to find the the limits and sadly well to our benefit he found a lot of limits between the groups up like your group and the the next few generations coming up to where our injury rates are next to none but you guys took the brunt of that for everybody and he did too mostly i mean yeah. he used to say i you know basically i'm throwing myself under the bus uh, uh, as a lab rat yeah. uh, to uh, discover all these things. He had no qualms about it. And, um, and he was plenty smart enough to understand that there were risks involved, but he was willing to take it, you know. Um, to go on a little segue, well, it's popped into my head from a few people. I've, uh, I've got stories about the board, the concept of when the board got up for that, and Louis said, such and such a person did this. And you're renowned, as I said, you're like our, our historical Sherpa for your knowledge. <laughs> and you would say, well, no, no, they did this. And uh, Louis was like, no. And then that's where the idea of the board came. So there was a universal place to where there's no ambiguity of who did what. And that's what started the board. Yeah. I, the, uh, I mean, it wasn't like he consult. you know, we, we go in there one day and now there's just you know, chalkboard up there and uh you know he starts dividing it in in different segments for squats and weight classes and all that kind of stuff it just made sense um and this didn't start until several years i don't know exactly when maybe th th three or four years maybe mm -hmm. five years even after the group started uh, to uh to jump back that weeding out process was there at the start. What was that like? What uh, we just talked about a few days ago, we put up a post on how good Louis was at group dynamics, how he knew when and what to say, who to say it to, and just step back and step in. Was that there from the start? And when did you really go, oh man, he's playing, he's playing games to see if you can last and to find out if your weakness is mental or physical. When did that begin? As far as I could tell, darn near right away. And it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He was, um, he would play these little ga head games and it was so subtle and it was so, you couldn't tell at first, you know. And within a couple of weeks, usually six weeks is what I recall, um, he would find out what you were made of and by fucking with you in, in real subtle little ways. 
And if after a number of couple of weeks or a number of weeks of this, if you're like a little uh, scared dog with your tail between your legs, that type of thing, um, chances are you're, you'll be gone pretty soon. But what he wanted was he wanted all his lifters to have one thing, and that is killer's instinct. He, and that's what he would find out if you had that. Mm -hmm. So, and he would do that by sometimes teasing you in a kind of a digging fashion that didn't feel good. Um, there were other ways that he would do this. After being there a couple of years, somebody would come in and I'd see it and I'd think, oh boy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there it goes, Junior's gonna get it. <laughs> and um, so, but uh, that's how he, and I think from that whole process came the exclusivity of Westside Barbell. Mm -hmm. you, you know, for, for decades there, um, you couldn't even walk through those doors, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you had to be invited and all that type of thing. So I think that was a natural part of his thinking. Uh, but yeah, he would mess with you, and he did it with me uh, in the in the early time. And uh, at first, you're like, God, you know. And I'm the kind that's like, geez, what I do wrong now, you know. And then after he's throwing left jabs at you a little while, it's like, I remember, I I remember thinking, I got mad at him, you know. And I, and I am, I think I said, I think I said, you know, what, you know, what the fuck's wrong? What, what, you know, I got pissed, and then now I'm under a bar, a heavy bar, squatting, and I'm pissed off. He had me; he would get me mad, you know, and fire it up like that. That's what he wanted. That's what he wanted right there. Then, once you understood what's going on, and I'm assuming the other members, the founding members that were there, probably just as quick figured out, okay, this is the this is the way it is. Did you guys hold everyone else to the same level that came in? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Gary Sanger, who wound up being a great 198, uh, I brought him in. And uh, and uh, I'd seen him at the Osho Weightlifting Club for a while. And I've seen this. I'm paying attention to him after, like, for a couple of months, you know. And I told Lou, I said, there's this guy at Osho. He's, <laughs> he looks pretty good. And even back then, Lou would, Lou would say, you know, don't bring any, you know, <laughs> losers in here. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm spending another couple of weeks observing, and I said, I, I, this is this is no loser. He's, and uh, you know, and he's really real, re Lou's very reluctant. I bring him down. I remember bringing Gary down there. You know, taking a squat workout, and I remember Lou playing with him. You know, playing with his head. You know, with Gary. Yeah. You know, Gary's just like. <clears throat> all business and um very aggressive and uh and he wound up being a huge contribution to the garage the, uh, lose training confidence yeah where they would sit down and that's where he, he realized you don't criticize you analyze and they would analyze and go hey what does jim need what is this and that was the, the thinking process that was that that method that started coming in yeah, gary was lou's first real collaborator yeah okay whereas the rest of us um we, you know, we were pretty much conditioned to go along with what Lou said. He was very strong-minded even then, um, even though he had ideas about different things. But Gary and Lou really uh, had that mind meld about training ideas that Lou always had in him, mm -hmm. you know, which then comes out you know, years later. But yeah, those two guys came up with some good stuff. 
how many how many generations of lifters did you stay through because <clears throat> there's always been groups yeah but there's been people who've transcended like go to each group and then some had a graceful uh i guess out or um and then others not so much but uh, how many of those groups did you stay through yeah i i, I started fading out um when when it transitioned from the garage to that first gym on briggs uh, yeah on briggs and I, I was training there still for a while and then it went from briggs to demerst i mm -hmm. think um by the time i got to demerst I, I was in there a little bit but basically i decided um uh you know to i was still lifting heavy yeah uh, i just wasn't competing and um i lifted heavy and up until like I was lifting heavy up until like 2005 and six, you know, when I st started having shoulder issues. But yeah, I mean, so I was there all through the garage years, every bit of the garage years and saw a lot of people come and go. It was mm -hmm. a great time. Um, but I missed the nineties, mm -hmm. obviously when you had guys like Dave Tate and, uh, 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 Kenny Patterson, George Halbert. I mean, and all those, uh, all those guys that came in through the 90s the 90s group was really um it was up a couple of orbits higher mm -hmm. uh, than what we were doing and lou had come up with the early years in the garage i call the technical years that's when he came up with all the ideas uh, exercise ideas and then that transformed into the strategic years mm -hmm. where, where it was percent training and all the intelligence stuff to make people stronger you know with just programs and and, and uh, conjugate stuff and all the, those complexities. So, did you have any idea it would get to the extent it's got now? No, no one would have had a clue. I don't even think Lou. You know, Lou. It's it's not so much Lou had talent; it's that the talent had him. So he was so gifted with all this that it just says, "Come on, you're going this way." It. He. You know, he almost had didn't have a choice just to. He just uh, it, the creativity and the the brilliance of it all just was there. Uh, I don't even think he he believed. I mean, you know what I mean? It's just like when you first start something like that, it's how you gonna know? Yeah, you know. And well, I still think till it keeps developing. He didn't know, and he didn't want to know, nor should he, because the gym was everything. The gym was the universe. That was everything else was just there. Tom. So he comes up with the idea for reverse hypers that works so incredibly well, it's shocking. And this is the first time we know that something is, this is insanely yep. good. Well, he sat on that idea for like 10 years. I mean, the, it, nobody was making anything back then. Yeah. You know, he, it, it, it really came into nobody's mind that, wait a second, this is a very valuable thing here. And a lot of people are going to benefit from it. And it could turn into a pretty darn good business, you know that was not you know that was just the way it was back then nothing like it is today so i think when he started writing for the powerlifting usa yeah. um and he started having success with those articles uh that be that lit the flame for him to you know to uh, one thing leads to another not only did he write he gave out his home phone number and took calls <laughs> Yeah, all the time. always. Yeah, he always he, did he that. He took calls every day. And that was before emails. So Louis was doing his version of emails before they were a thing. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. He liked helping people. Mm-hmm. He really did. He had to under- and um, uh, he was very generous with his time and um, uh, it helped so many people. That's the one thing everyone needs to know about this guy, uh, about how much good he would do for people for just because he wanted to help them. He felt good about himself when he was helping people. I know that. I saw that for years and years and years, you know. Um, and he used to tell us early on, he would say, you have a duty and a responsibility to pass this information on to other people. And we all took up that mantle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wherever gyms I was training, um, uh, you know, I would, I would see somebody squatting unbelievably bad, you know, and I'd try to nicely <laughs> say, you know, why don't you try this, you know? Yeah. But I did that for years and years, and that's because of Lou. Well, the obviously the the outpouring of stories and everything has been phenomenal to read, but the amount of people he helped in passing, like just just by small little comments. And I was telling the story yesterday with some visitors in to see the gym, and we had a Greco wrestler named Ori Elor, and he was two hundred and I think I can't remember two hundred eighty pounds, and we're at. Manelli's restaurant and he goes Lou I want to get down and Lou's like all you got to do is eat meat eat your vegetables eat some greens that's it and that was it just stopped and then continued on talking about training eight months later Ori comes 198 pounds and Lou's like what the fuck happened to you and he, he was like I did what you told me what did I tell you yeah and then Ori made the Olympic team and like there's so many of these stories that Louis gave these little nuggets and because Louis talked, like the cliche of like drinking water from a fire hose, he threw out so much information that once you could grab little nuggets, that's all you needed. And it set you on. And a lot of people, a lot of stories, a lot of gyms wouldn't be there. Uh, Mark Bell, I think, said this in uh, his podcast about Lou, is that who was inventing equipment? Like it was so hard back then to find someone to take great, uh, do prototypes, test them out, and then sell it. He was a one-man show. He started, like, basically been able to do that. He was there at the start when Rogue Fitness were there. He was there at the start for a lot of what we take for granted nowadays. Yeah. Like, yeah. the sharing of information wasn't there. Going over to people, like, there's no Facebook. There was no any social media. But he would go and talk and chat and stop at places and try things and did everything, did his own research. Uh, the private sector wasn't really a thing. And then Louis showed people how to train athletes outside of the outside of their own networks. And then you have a private whole private sector booming. There's a lot of stuff that has roots and contributions to this gym and to really to Louis and to the founding groups. Because if they're that that's a thing that I don't think people understand fully. You had Louis, but you had the people with him. And that's how all this came. And he knew that he used to say. You can say whatever you like about me, but just don't talk bad about my club. Because that's how important Westside and the group members were. And every generation gave back, gave back to where, the, like, look at the heights of the last 10 years. Like when Dave Hoff was here, became the strongest powerlifter in the world. I mean, everyone capitalized on all that information, oh, yeah. which all had a start from the two of you guys meeting at OSU and then going to the basement, into the garage, to where it is now is just pretty phenomenal when you think about it. it's a guy who got in fights every day and hit high school just barely got through and and yeah. uh to create a family too that was a big thing going to uh to breakfast that was a big thing yeah 
just to share uh, share stories. Like talking shit was one of his favorite hobbies. And man, he was fucking good at it. Yeah. Like he was so good at like very quick witted, had comedic timing. And a, like, oh. I don't think people realize like how funny that guy was. Oh, you know, those early days, you know, when he was, when he was at the top of his game, he was so funny. It's just, you know, and we were all trying to mimic him. He was so quick witted and, um, you know, uh, just, it was great. Um, he was so powerful and he was addicting in a way, his personality and everything. You just wanted to be around him all the time. And, uh, you know, you just, um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think as time went on and uh, he had more and more injuries and problems mm -hmm. and he was in pain a lot, um, I think it took the edge off of that. It sometimes made him difficult to be around, you know especially when he was in pain or hadn't slept very much because he was in pain. Um, and, and that went on for years. That wasn't just something mm -hmm. that recently happened. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, but geez, he was funny. I, I you know, we, you didn't have any video. Um, well, Lou, Lou didn't, Lou was against trophies. He, he was against things that kind of recognized, you know, of course we were all that way too, you know, yeah. And um, hardly any photos of back in those days because nobody was taking pictures. It, it, you know, you had to use a, a camera with film in it. Uh, you didn't have a video camera back then. It had to have been a, you know, a, a, a camera with film in it. And uh, so it's, if I could change one thing, it would be to capture a lot more of that on film. You know, if you could just, change one thing in photographs photographs of just doing all these different things you know but i asked lou about it and he felt that if there was it would have changed it he was like he didn't want any of that in because he felt it changed he wanted the members to always hold themselves in the highest standard possible and um and he's like we could have had it in but he thought it would change the dynamic he thought people would act different if the camera was there yeah, it's kind of like it's what's called the Heisenberg principle. Yep. The observation affects the result. Yeah. Um, I, 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 he, I like. I would like to think that he would be wrong about that. Yeah. You know, but he very well was right. But um, uh, when I think back, uh, it would. Man, I, I, I wish we had that to to, to look at. You know, because there's really very very little that was captured. Yeah. On film, yeah, or photos or anything. The, um, there's a question that I try to ask every member, especially in the, 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 the start generations, is what kept you guys there? Because there was, no one was making you go. The training was hard. The atmosphere was tough. It was all these things that people, a lot of people wouldn't enjoy at the start. There was no one making you go, but you talk to everyone, they couldn't miss. They couldn't go. They didn't want to go on vacation. And I don't want to tell too many of the other stories because we've got more people coming in. But I know there was people back late 80s that would get two sets of flights. If they went on vacation, they would have to fly back for training because you didn't miss and you fly back out. But Lou wasn't directly there going. Yeah, they just had this feel like to where. You know, in Hawaii, off the off the island of Hawaii once a year they have these monster waves that come in and mm -hmm. these these lunatics go out there and ride these 70 80 foot waves in 
training down there in that garage was an ongoing monster wave experience. There's no way you're going to miss it. We were high, high, high as a kite on doing all this stuff. We were getting strong. We knew it. Things were changing. It was, it was rock and roll. That is, I never went on a vacation for 10 years. I, I wouldn't, I, I mean, never went anywhere. Um, he, he didn't like it if he did anyhow, but I, but you didn't care. Um, you never, you couldn't be late for a workout. Uh, none of us were, yeah. um, always early. Um, there's no way you're going to want to miss that. It, that whole spirit of that whole thing was, yeah, just capturing. It had you captured and you were so into it. And it was such rock and roll and get progress and strength and size and everything. It was, did, it wasn't for a while till you realized that don't think this is going on just everywhere in the world right yeah. now. After about six or seven years or so, um, and then when you could look outside your world, uh, you'd realize that this isn't happening everywhere. Well, you know, John Black up there in Cleveland, <clears throat> Black's Health World. Mm -hmm. I mean, Central, uh, Cent Ohio and Central Ohio, this is like ground zero for strength. It always has been. You had uh, Larry Psifko over there in Dayton and Don Reinhout. Mm -hmm. uh, Roger E. stepped in uh, Wheeling, uh, West Virginia. Louis really respected Roger mm -hmm. a lot. He was a beast. Um, so, but then we started to realize that, you know, once you got too far away from Ohio or that Midwest area there, um, it dropped off. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was nothing going on in New York <laughs> or, you know, up and down the East Coast, relatively speaking. And, and you know, not so much out in California, right? but it was just happening there, man. I mean, and why do you think that was? I don't know. I really don't know. You think it was the blue collar spirit, the or was it industry? What what was like? If you look back in Ohio, Ohio is an extremely strong state under surrounding states. It's a uh, it's really is baffling. It, it, well, you know, you know, you can't ski here in the way. I mean, the best time to lift weights is in the wintertime. I mean, and what do you got in Ohio? You got nothing. You got cold weather, you, you know, and it's just, and I think you got to, uh, and, and the population is, uh, it just, it's right for it. You know, you got talented people from different parts of the world that came, you know, immigrants that came over and, uh, you know, and it just, it just happens. Football was always been big here. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, uh, it's just, it just happens. You know, how, how come you don't have it in South America? How come there aren't world champion powerlifters coming out of, let's say, Rio de Janeiro all the time? Well, yeah. probably has a lot to do with where they're li living. Um, but you have soccer players. You got soccer so, players. So everyone, I, I yeah. get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it has something to do with that. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there that's done a study <laughs> on it, but... Back to training at the, or the, the garage. Is it true that you guys would wait if louis had to with work or whatever it might be at 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night that whatever the time is everyone was there to train everyone was there to, to train but i don't ever remember it at 10, at 10 or 11 o'clock at night that didn't happen he would he would come in you know he was crane operator and uh and did all, i think did all kinds of things in the really really early days he would come in full of mud 
and have like these overalls on, you know, and then he ditched that. Doris would say, get, get out of here, you know, go around to the back. And he had to, and then he would jump into his gym clothes. Yeah. So he worked all day long. I saw this so many times. He worked all day long at a hard job, you know, didn't get a moment to sit there and take a 10 minute nap or anything like that. He's out there in the garage lifting and, and lifting good, big weights, making PRs and all that kind of stuff. I never could understand how he did that. Plus, watching a guy leading from the front like that, you're like, well, if he's doing it, I've got no excuse. Yeah, we didn't even think like that. It was just, it, it's, I don't ever recall thinking that, you know, geez, you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to stay here. Um, I don't know, you know, it, it, <laughs> it was never that. It was like, you know, let's, it was full bore. It was completely um, afterburners the whole way. And while this is going on, you're still bodybuilding. Can we talk a bit about how your bodybuilding career went while training at Westside and during? And really, you were probably, was that what you'd call power building back then? Was that Power what? bodybuilding, right. Yeah, I mean, most people know that, you know, I, Louis doesn't like, or didn't like bodybuilders and um, uh, that I was there because he wanted to prove that powerlifting could make a good bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. And that was all true. So for me, six months out of the year, I was um, powerlifting and going to powerlifting competitions. And then six months out of the year, I was uh, merging over to bodybuilding, but always still coming down to the gym, mm -hmm. doing heavy squats, deadlifts, rack deadlifts, and benching because that kept my size up. Um, so I was the only one that had that benefit of being able to go back and forth between yeah. both worlds. Uh, what was the question again? Well, I was uh, <clears throat> going through your career as a bodybuilder, but been able to keep powered up and been a gym. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, he was very generous in allowing me to stay there. Um, and uh, so... What level did you, were, how high were you able to get by doing this hybrid? Well, yeah, so I was able to win the Mr. Ohio competition because I had been in, in the garage and that first year I really gained a lot of, my body was just ready to put muscle on. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we weren't doing any gear back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was all natural muscle building caused by lifting heavy weights the yeah. correct way. And I, 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 you know, I'm in my 20s, my early 20s, and my body was just so ready for this. Yeah. And it was just like throttle up. And um, so it's happening so fast, I almost don't know what's happening. So I went, I did a couple of uh, like regional shows, Ohio regional shows, like the uh, Mr. Metropolitan down in Cincinnati won that, and then won the, the uh, South District over in Dayton. Uh, went to the Mr. Ohio, uh, Ohio the first time and got like fifth place. Mm -hmm. um, but then the, the next year I went in and won it up in Cleveland, and um, which they had their favorite uh, uh, up there, a uh, uh, guy from Fremont, Ohio, Ron Gibson. And he was, he, Ron was a big guy, much to his credit. And um, uh, they all, I don't know how I won that because it, it uh, a guy got booed because everybody wanted Ron to win. You know, yeah. he was a local boy and all that kind of stuff. And I told my girlfriend, I think we should get out of here. You know what, we can. 
and I grabbed my trophy and left, you know, but uh, I just clearly had a lot more muscle mass and, mm -hmm. sy and symmetry and separation, you know. Um, and then as I got stronger, Lou was right, in the Iron Samurai, um, as I got stronger and the squats got stronger and deadlifting, that type of thing, um, I just kept getting bigger. So then uh, 1978, I uh, went to my first national. It was Mr. USA in um, Pittsburgh and got third in my height class. Back then it was all short, medium, and tall class. Mm -hmm. uh, six weeks later, I go to the Mr. America in Cincinnati and I got like fifth there. Okay, but I clearly wasn't ready for it. 1979, that was my year. Like that movie, My Favorite Year. Yeah. 1979 is my favorite year. So I started out in May of 79 winning the opener kickoff for the Nationals, uh, for National Bodybuilding, which was called the Mideast Open. Jim Mannion had it in Pittsburgh. And I, t I turned in a brilliant condition. I didn't even really know what I, how I did it. But I was just full and just <laughs> ripped yeah. to shreds. And it was like all straight ones across the board, you know, and I'm thinking, and how'd that happen? You know, <laughs> I really didn't know. Yeah. We didn't have the technology they have today. Six weeks after that, I won the Junior USA in Memphis. Um, and that was a big win. That was a very big win. And that got me, those two got, got me in the national eye, you know. Mm -hmm. And then in first week of September, of 79 in Atlanta at the Peachtree Theater. Um, I got second place to Ron Tufel uh, in, uh, in my class. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Ray Menser won it. He clearly deserved to win yeah. it. He just was phenomenal. And, but Ron was very, very close. And I was really close to Ron. He had four first place votes and three second. And I had three first place votes and four seconds so it was really really close yeah. you know and it was a lot of fun that was the most funny <clears throat> bodybuilding competition I ever had um <laughs> that was a blast uh so then now you know in the i'm in the national eye it's a real contender for uh, mr america contest after that and i made the biggest mistake of my life i took like a week off and i started back training bodybuilding really hard again and three days out of the week, they were two-a-days, all right? So all through the fall and all through the winter, I'm just, it's just full throttle. Mm -hmm. And that was a big mistake, huge mistake, because by the time it got to the point where I needed to start my cycle for bodybuilding and everything, I was a total burned-out cinder. Okay. And I knew it. That's when it hit me. I was just burned out. And I wasn't able to, I should have rested a lot more mm -hmm. you know dave hoff is brilliant with that he knows how to rest mm -hmm. he'll take three or four months off you know from from a big powerlifting competition and just chill out that's the way you do it you know at least for us back then how <clears throat> so when your bodybuilding is going on you're still you had powerlifting competitions too right? yeah and how was your competitive powerlifting career well you know what i mean uh i, I you know i was okay okay strong i love squatting and deadlifting yeah. i looked like i should have been a 550 bencher in a t-shirt but you know i i i had a piss poor bench and lou would bust my <laughs> balls incessantly about it I said, i'm doing everything i can i don't know what else to do you know it goes 
she goes, I got girls that could lift more than you, you know, and uh, whatever. So I just didn't have a good bench. Um, so, but I was bound and determined to get an elite in something, you know, yeah. in one of my weight classes. And, and, you know, I dropped down like 10 pounds away in for the 198s. And um, I failed like two or three times that didn't get a squat passed or screwed up in the bench or whatever. And I was like really getting frustrating. And then finally, there's a, uh, the, the Mountaineer open and uh, I trained really hard for it. <laughs> and I think I told you, uh, I got sick with the flu uh, about oh, yeah. a week before and I was really sick with the flu. So sick that Lou gets in his car and drives over to my house. Well, you know, that's, that means I'm near death because <laughs> he didn't, you know, you know yeah. and he tries to talk me into not going. This is like three days before the meet. I said, I don't care what you say. I'm going to this meet. I don't care if I throw up all over everybody. I'm going to this meet. And I did. I went to the meet. And thanks to um, uh, a couple of guys from uh, that uh, come to lose to work out on occasion from there, uh, they wrapped me up and, you know, stood me up, <laughs> got me underneath a bar or whatever. And I had a great day. I mean, I got elite in 98 by about 30 pounds over. So go figure. Yeah. I mean, you know. How did how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> did you get a did you get another elite total? Got another elite in two twenty, um, and uh, uh, about a year later, um, I totaled I think I totaled eighteen fifty somewhere mm -hmm. around there, and um, uh, I s smoked a seven forty uh, on my third attempt, and you know Lou was really happy yeah and he was like you know he was like wide-eyed like that <laughs> you know and and everything and uh um so and I I told you that he um uh he he started making big plans for me yeah is there um any loose stories that you can share with us that many people maybe wouldn't know or wouldn't think from all the times I know it's probably a hard question to ask in the in the moment here but you were around in such a influential age. Is there anything that you're like, oh, wow, or something? Man. Um, he was just generous, so generous um, to me. Um, there was time when I didn't have enough money for gas. And he give you money? There's a lot of people that he helped out like that. Yeah. I was, that's just, just so I could get, you know, so I could get around. Yeah. I didn't have a pot to piss in. I mean, I had nothing. And, uh, you know, but I mean, there's a lot of funny stories too. I mean, Jesus, he was funny. Uh, but uh, uh, I just, I, I don't even know where to start. Any of them funny stories that are safe for, I don't think a lot of people can realize how many funny stories we all have of Lou, but we just can't, we can't tell a lot of them. What was amazing is the people that came to the gym that respected Lou and that Lou was able to handle them for who they were, never wanted them to change, only in the way that would benefit them. Um, because it was, uh, I'm not sure if it's the right way, but you'd have a mix of saints and sinners in there, but everybody got along like as best you could. There's that family thing, but he was the nucleus. He, he kind of glued everyone together. Um, and you were there the days when Matt Dimmel was there. Yeah. And that was like i think it's about as big a loose cannon you can get there's a few more along the way but um how was that how did he manage to to keep 
that chaos under whatever control he could. Those were his rules. And there, there was no bones about it. There, there was no gray area. It was, this is the way it's going to be. Everybody gets along, you know, even if you have differences. There was only one person I had problems with. Um, but you table it and you go on with your workouts and that type of thing. Matt Dimmel, he, you could always feel the tension there. You could always feel that the fuse was lit and it was burning down. You know, is it going to make it all the way down before this workout ends or not? So Matt was like that sometimes, mm -hmm. not every, not all the time, but sometimes you could tell when he was, there was a high amount of tension. You just did your workout. And, you know, Matt was like a giant grizzly bear that paid attention that, that would only obey his master, you know? So, you know, Matt loved Lou and just, you know, Lou had that control over him because, uh, you know, Matt was volatile. And uh, so, yeah, but everyone got along down there um, because they wanted to get along and you would table certain little problems that you had, you know, like in a marriage, it's like, you know, so, you know, there's things about each other you don't like, but, you know, you, you let it go because, you know, it's, and that's, and basically everybody did get along, you know, and we, you let off a lot of tension just by teasing each other, mm -hmm. you know, so everybody, you know, some days you'd have the target on yeah. your face, you know, like, and everybody's on you like, like stink on shit and, you know, you're getting crushed and all that kind of stuff, but you're laughing it off. And then the next workout, it's, you know, whoever, yeah. and, you know, just razzing each other like crazy. That was important for keeping high spirits mm -hmm. in the gym. I tell these guys today, when you come through that door, act up, act crazy, keep your spirits high and keep things up. Because as soon as you walk out that door, you're now back to the real world. And it's just a lot of it's yeah. bullshit, you know. But 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 it does seem that there is from every generation has been a always a little core group. There's been a few people that have always been lifelong friends that met or lose. Yeah. And um, what I find absolutely fascinating is that there's always key people in lose life for the gym. You're um to me, you've know, you know you're in Lou's ecosystem when he ends a conversation, but that's just the way Jim is. <laughs> like, you just know because he figured out, like, this is just the way you are, and he'd know that, but how everyone can talk. Like, a lot of us in, outside of Westside, we would never have met. We probably would interact in way different circles, but yet when everyone gets together, there's this uniform. Like, we have this, this I guess, language that we can talk that everyone's like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that he created this verbiage. He created all this. Again, when we were talking or going back and forth before this, the nomenclature wasn't there when you guys, but it got created to where we know exactly what you guys are talking about because we saw the end result, which is very, very unusual. And I don't, obviously will never be replicated. Um, but to see the friendships and a lot of people uh, that have come through, looking back, like this is the best time of my life, didn't even know it. Oh yeah, everybody says that. Um, the one thing Louis did love or did like, I shouldn't say love was, uh, wrestling, pro wrestling. And we've had a lot of pro wrestlers come in and out and we we're just talking about it the other day. It's amazing how that's the one sport that makes you feel like a little kid, regardless who you are. Um, 
did you go to any of the shows with him yeah we uh yeah he he loved he would crack jokes about uh bobo brazil and and all and, and calling us different wrestling names and all this type of thing uh but yeah back in maybe the early 90s or something we all went to a big time wrestling show at um, downtown and lou and doris and matt dimmel kevin akins who was a shot putter, shot putter yeah. uh, olympic shot putter and um I forget who there maybe there were a couple of others there but uh yeah i mean you know we're watching big time wrestling and uh he loved that stuff he really did and uh and afterwards we're you know we're walking back through the parking lot to the cars and and uh matt snapped he just snapped like that and he went after kevin and attacked him and knocked him to the ground well, the next thing you know, Lou is in there and he's grabbing Matt. He's really grabbing Matt and throwing him off and is backing him up. Matt's backing up like this. And Lou is just like, you don't ever do that again. Don't, I don't want to ever see that. He was just so, it was a, <laughs> it was a, a good movie scene, believe me. Yeah. And uh, so, and, and that's when, you know he was reinforcing that thing that we all get along here you know and don't you ever pull a stunt like that again uh, he never did that was it i mean you know so but yeah i mean you know uh, yeah he loved big time wrestling he watched it he, you, you come over and he's sitting there in front of the tv and he's he's watching he's watching wrestling oh wrestling but boxing he was one of the best boxing analysts i have ever witnessed the fact that i don't uh if mma was out when he first started i think he would that would have been his sport but boxing he could see stuff he would watch boxing with no sound because he didn't want to see hear the commentators but uh he would call stuff and you're like how the fuck is he doing this the same with mma but the way he would analyze he would look at everything i remember rob pilger used to come back and forth and rob was uh, to go on back with the greatest fights and uh, he'd piss rob off so much and lou's like i watched it live and like rob's a relatively young guy compared to lou and he would just get off confused then he'd come back a few days later and was like well maybe he was right and um that used to fascinate me just the way and basketball uh, that blew my mind of how big of a basketball fan he was i mean this <laughs> louis is lucky if he's five foot five like but uh love basketball all these sports but he just love sports love competition and a huge respect for stuff that he couldn't do and um he carried all that into the into the gym and i was very fortunate to see from the back end of things of how he would like basically download everything into his brain and just write it out in this absolute maze of writing and page 10 could have been page two but when you assemble it you're like oh there's a lot of stuff here was he like that when you guys were there that he would just watch and analyze and he always watched sports a lot um i didn't know his i didn't know what you said about boxing i mm -hmm. mean um you not too many times you would just go over and sit and, yeah. and you know watch tv with him but um but knew he liked sports a lot and uh all of it i mean you know football too he was Mm -hmm. all of it he was a huge, real huge sports huge fan. ohio state fan. huge ohio state fan yeah a um, uh, huge browns fan 
um jim to to wrap up this section and hopefully we'll have you come in when we get more people in as i said you're going to be our sherpa through through the initial generations is there anything that you feel that people misunderstood or didn't understand about lou that we can end on well you know lou's a complex individual and um uh he you know like a lot of brilliant people um uh uh, he's uh, got uh highs and lows in certain Mm -hmm. areas and uh uh, what do they call it eccentric eccentricities he was eccentric and um i think that the thing for for lou that kept us good friends all those years uh understanding for me understanding was the key understanding him would allow me to uh be able to deal with his lows and you know mm-hmm. and highs and that type of thing when he was in a great mood and everything was feeling good that you didn't want to be around anybody else it was just he was fantastic and mm-hmm. everybody down there who's ever been down there all those years you know from the 70s through the 2000s knows that mm-hmm. um when he wasn't having a good day either from pain or whatever um he could be very difficult and i would find myself just quietly backing up turning around <laughs> and leaving that was the best thing to do yeah you know you don't want to you don't want to be on the receiving end of it and you certainly don't want to antagonize him yeah. you know that's a stupid thing to do i think some people did that but that's just it i mean you know and uh, i was always uh 100 loyal to him he knew that if anything if anything ever happened he could call on me or mm-hmm. call me or whatever and i would be there i'd drop what i'm doing and be there for him that never left between us that feeling between us was always there and um when i was winning bodybuilding competitions like crazy there for a while i always told people first off the reason for any of my success is because of lou simmons and powerlifting you know yeah, yeah i mean you know that and yeah i go you know and then i tell them what i do part of the part of the time bodybuilding you know and all that kind of junk but and, it, and that's completely true all the credit went to him you know and powerlifting because mm-hmm. otherwise i'd just be a, a a gymnast that might have seven or eight pounds more on me you know because I, I didn't know how to unlock that door to get to all that size and thickness that i had it was through powerlifting so he made all that possible plain and simple and if you don't credit the right people for mm-hmm. for these kind of things you're just making a mistake so well jim thanks for today and hopefully we'll be on again real soon thanks tom